1: views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity.
0: Hello, and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Batier. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. I am here today with Damien Beauchamp, president and chief development officer at Eight Rivers. Eight Rivers develops infrastructure scale solutions to help companies and governments reach net zero. As we will hear in this conversation, they do this in a unique way that has led to a high amount of success. So let's get Damien on the mic and start hearing about it. Damien, thank you for joining me on this episode today. If you would please share with me in the audience your background and an introduction to A. Rivers.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Joe. And I appreciate you having us on. Uh, uh, so for me, background, uh, formal training is in chemistry. Uh, so did undergrad and, and graduate work in chemistry. Uh, during my graduate work, uh, engaged in some entrepreneurial activities uh, and on the side of working towards my graduate degree, started two companies, um, got engaged in pitch competitions around the country, Uh, pitching clean energy solutions and energy storage and chemical inventory systems. Um, And then through that, uh, came to to find Eight Rivers, ultimately, in in, uh, Austin, Texas, at a Fortune magazine conference where I was speaking. Um, As you mentioned at the beginning, uh, Eight Rivers is focused on large-scale uh, industrial decarbonization so how do you reduce and eliminate the emissions from hard to abate sectors uh, things like large-scale power generation the petrochem industry ammonia uh, building materials steel uh, you know areas like this and and we take an innovative approach um, and and sometimes an unconventional approach uh, t- for reducing emissions from these sectors
0: that is very exciting because, as you point out, this is one of those areas that it's very hard to abate. And even this week, we are at Sarah Week recording and during Secretary Granholm's uh, keynote address, she talked about a new FOA coming out about specifically decarbonizing large-scale hard-to-abate industries. So I'm curious for Eight Rivers you're here presenting at Sarah Week. You've got a, a booth. How, I guess, how long have you guys been around? What are some of those, what is this unique approach that you take to, to abating these industries?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we were founded in 2008. So we're about a decade and a half old now. And, uh, you know, our approach for abating emissions um, isn't, about force-fitting a single widget uh, into a customer's ecosystem. Um, Every customer's uh, system uh, is different and for each customer, uh, they have multiple locations all around the world and each one of those locations has unique circumstances. And so what we do is we first go in and, and work to understand the customer Uh, the customers concerns uh, how these systems operate and then we start to look for inefficiencies we look for places where uh, heat transfer can be done better we look for places where fuels can be combusted in a cleaner way making the co2 capture easier Um, uh, we look to integrate waste heat into the carbon capture process to try to keep the costs as low as possible additionally as we implement our solutions, we're always looking for co-generation benefits. So beyond just capturing CO2, in the process of capturing that CO2, are there opportunities to generate additional value-added products to help cover any additional CapEx or OpEx that may need to be put to work to implement the solution? Uh, And this approach of having empathy, meeting the customer where they're at, and focusing on economics has really been the biggest game changer for Eight Rivers. And I think for the industry, really embracing us as a uh, uh, alternative, uh, I would say, uh, unconventional clean tech company.
0: Yeah, that is, that's a very almost intuitive way that you would think about it. It almost sounds like, a, as you were explaining it, I was thinking of management consulting firms where they come in, they try to see... Who the company is what they do what they want to do and then they try to find the opportunities to increase efficiency and really you're just doing that in a in a carbon intensity or or production efficiency kind of style now you said you started in 2008 if my math is correct that is you're going on the 15th year of being in existence 2008 as as some viewers may remember was the financial crisis and there was a big recovery act that brought in lots of money into renewable energy and into maybe maybe you could call it renewable energy or energy transition 1.0 and and then there was kind of a lull which many companies did not survive but you are here at Sarah Week you have clearly survived, and, and it, based on, on what I'm seeing, it looks like you would be thriving now. I guess the, the question behind all of that is how did you, what has it looked like the past 15 years, and how would you say that you've made it through this
1: time and continue to grow? Absolutely. Um- <clears throat> So I've been with Eight Rivers now for seven years, Um, so wasn't here since the inception. But around 2008, whenever there are economic downturns, uh, it turns out that that's a great opportunity for new and emerging companies to grow. Um, With that um, uh, Recovery Act, uh, specifically there were some clean coal provisions uh, that were in there. Uh, And those are some of the first uh, items that started to catalyze eight rivers um, focus uh, in clean energy. So I wouldn't call it renewable energy. I wouldn't even say transition. I think that we're going to see a lot of the same energy sources used, but they're going to be used in cleaner ways. And then you'll see new sources come online. And so what initially uh, happened was There was a a large engagement from the Eight Rivers team in 2008, 2009, 2010 to look at how could you utilize coal in a cleaner way? How could you capture the emissions, uh, abate any particulate, reduce SOx and NOx? Um, And through that effort, um, Eight Rivers came to design what is known as the alum -fet fet cycle, which is a unique way of generating power and capturing the CO2. Um, in that effort, the focus was first to generate power using this new thermodynamic cycle uh, with coal. Um, and as uh, our group started to engage the industry, the advice that industry gave was: don't focus on coal; focus on gas because that's going to be the the fuel that really takes over in the United States. Um, and so the team uh, uh, repositioned uh, their focus on the natural gas-fired variant of the Alum-FetVet cycle. Uh, We then created the company NetPower, so we're the corporate founders, uh, ultimately licensed the technology to that subsidiary and then raised capital investment from various partners into that organization. Now, as we started to have a lot of success with uh, the Alum-FetVet cycle, we continued to develop the solid fuels variant so for coal and biomass um, but then we started to see hydrogen uh, start to come back into the conversation um, and we leveraged our expertise in heat recuperation and oxy combustion and carbon capture and put that to work uh, looking at new ways for generating hydrogen um, and that created adar 2 um, and then you know a lot of things happened between uh, you know then and now, Um, but recently we saw the the Carbon Removal XPRIZE get announced. Um, And uh, given our expertise in CO2, and in this industry, decided to throw our hat in the ring, we had been looking at some direct air capture uh, opportunities and and thought, given our experience and expertise, that we could compete uh, with a solution with, with the best companies out there, the Climeworks, the carbon engineerings of the world, uh, and And we unveiled calcite uh, as a solution for capturing co2 directly from the air
0: very cool and so it sounds like there's a a lot of different pieces to the c c s carbon capture carbon abatement <clears throat> puzzle that a rivers personally has developed and but at the beginning, you said your, your goal is to kind of look big picture, not necessarily trying to fit a round peg into a square hole. So I want to ask with, with this larger picture, these, how do these specific technologies ultimately fix, fit into this larger picture of helping companies reduce their carbon intensity?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So with the technologies that I just covered, you know, the Allen-Fiffet cycle, um, ADAR-H2 and direct air capture, I I think it's obvious. Uh, So on power generation, we eliminate the emissions, give stable baseload to support the further rollout of intermittent renewables. ADAR-H2, form of hydrogen uh, that doesn't have emissions associated with it, goes into ammonia production uh, and petrochemical production, the two largest consumers of hydrogen today, to help abate uh, and and eliminate those emissions. For direct air capture, we're pulling it out of the air. But what's more important and the way that we can come to uh, various clients and provide Uh, unique and innovative solutions is the know-how that we've developed through these specific product lines. And so our ability to recuperate heat, our ability to deal with CO2 as a pure fluid, as well as oxycombustion are all common themes that we often bring to the table when we develop bespoke solutions for clients. We also take an unconventional view on decarbonization um, a lot of people believe that decarbonization is about deploying a solar panel deploying a windmill absolutely as energy demand grows that's a great thing to start putting into the mix but we've seen over the last two decades a lot of renewables get deployed and we just saw co2 emissions have peaked yet again now, the IEA reported that they were less than expected, still higher than ever. Uh, and so there's a disconnect between the reduction of CO2 emissions, at least in the near term, uh, and the deployment of not non-emitting uh, renewable energy. And so we're observing that these two things aren't uh, correlated. And... Another example of how we're reducing emissions for clients in interesting ways is we're looking at the oil and gas company and they're saying, listen, we've got a core business line. You're asking us to get into a new business. And that's that's what a lot of people are doing. And we've recognized that. So we're coming to them and saying, we're not asking you to get into a new business. In fact, you could take the fuels that you produce today and help decarbonize industry. You could take sour gas, for example. This is very controversial and counterintuitive. But if you could take stranded sour gas reserves today, produce them in a clean way, and then put tremendous amounts of natural gas into the system. One, you start to increase energy security for places like Europe, as we've seen with the Ukraine-Russia war. Um, But then you displace tremendous amounts of coal which has double the emissions profile of combusting natural gas, and then people might say, "Oh well, oh that can't be true." Well, if you look at the fracking revolution and uh, the Utica and Marcellus shale, when gas prices, when, when tremendous volumes of gas came online, price of gas went down. Suddenly, in the United States, gas was a feasible feedstock to fuel power generation. And you saw a measurable, significant and measurable reduction in CO2 emissions. And so that's that's an example of we're looking all the way on the upstream and finding solutions for decarbonization through the system on the downstream. Yeah, that I really like that example. And, and seeing
0: that full cycle picture of how do you actually decarbonize in it, and it almost, then you could even start looking at it in that kind of scope one, scope two, scope three style, whether a a company wants you to do that or, or whether that is a mandate that, that a company has. I do want to, I want to ask this question though, because I'm sure some of my listeners are thinking it when we're talking about reducing carbon right now. Many companies have come out with their net zero goals, whether it's net zero by 2050, some of them net zero by 2030. And and then the other side of this, this conversation that you often hear from individuals is that carbon reduction or, or focusing on becoming net zero is ultimately a cost to business. It's not actually profitable. It is just a, it's almost like a, a price on doing business. But it's kind of what you've been doing for 15 years now is is looking at that. So I guess what would you say to somebody who says carbon abatement is just added cost? I'd rather not look at that.
1: Yeah, I would say um, you, you have to start by first suspending your disbelief for long enough to be able to listen. Um, and, and the way that we go about uh, abating emissions isn't exclusively by post-combustion carbon capture, having some adsorbent on the back end take in an effluent. That is not the only way we're approaching abating these emissions. And the reason that people are saying that it's just an added cost is because traditionally that's been the approach. Um, You know, CO2 is on the back end. Let's capture it on the back end. What we're saying is, and and oftentimes on the back end, you're fighting entropy. Um, So CO2 is very dilute in a in a big mix of a lot of other gases and you're you're actually you you happen to be trying to capture the co2 at one of the most dilute points aside from direct air capture right that's even more dilute Uh, but yet we're doing that and so if, if the direct air capture is acceptable, but the post-combustion capture doesn't seem to be, and the reason that it's not is it's looked at as a CapEx adder and an OpEx adder onto a facility that was financed without that additional uh, CapEx and OpEx. And so what we do is we go into a facility, uh, and instead of having our carbon capture solutions only capture CO2, we look at the entire system and look how can we leverage the CO2 capture system to produce additional byproducts, that's one. Two, how, can, how and where can we produce a pure stream of CO2 such that we don't have to capture it? Oftentimes that's in the form of oxycombustion. A lot of these large industrial systems require significant amounts of heat uh, we think we've got the power generation piece solved, right? And so when you talk about, you know, oh, it's added cost, oftentimes we're looking at power plants for this. Um, I would say the energy transition and clean energy sector has now started to really focus on industrial processes. How do you reduce the emissions from those processes? And uh you know, that's where systems thinking comes in. That's where cogeneration comes in. That's where principles of refining comes in. Um, y- y- you have to be able to develop a system that can either capture the CO2 or produce it in pure form and then create other value streams. Yep. I, I really like that point you're making about finding value
0: in in what was originally considered that waste product of that co2 because i think that's one of the ways that that you can turn that cost into value is well we're we're capturing it we're purifying it and right now for many the idea is okay let's take that and put it into the subsurface and maybe we can sell some carbon credits and that is the way that they can think to monetize it but if there is a direct use for that CO2, and you can get a high enough quality CO2 for, for selling back onto the CO2 market. That that seems to make sense.
1: Yeah, and, it, and it's not even so much that we're just trying to generate value from the CO2. Here in the U.S., the IRA does that for us. What I'm talking about is, like, for example, if you look at our direct air capture process called calcite, it's going to pull CO2 from the air using aqueous calcium hydroxide. The product that comes out of that is a very refined and fine calcium carbonate product. That calcium carbonate product is valuable to the building industry. And in fact, they work to process and create that, that calcium carbonate product today in a very emissions-intensive manner it's worth about two to three hundred dollars a ton and what we're saying is that the way that you've looked at creating the product is what we can fix we can build a process that produces that same product but in the process captures co2 now so it's not about retrofitting everything it's not about just capturing co2 it's about starting from a blank sheet of paper and saying, I have the constraint of producing all of the commodities that this system would produce otherwise, but I have to capture the CO2 as well. And I have to create value at the end of the day. And if those two things don't happen, when we go and invent a system or look at a system and work to provide a solution, that solution won't see the light of day. The customer won't see it. And if at the end of the day we can't find a solution, we'll say that we can't find a solution.
0: Now, one, I guess right now you just brought up the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, and right now there is significant funding associated with the IRA for carbon capture and, and decarbonization. How? How exactly has that impacted either your work or how does that impact the way that you are going about looking at these
1: projects? Um, So I think our benefit is that we started building this foundation of decarbonization, industrial decarbonization, before there was any Uh, infrastructure act before there was any 45 q and because of that we had the constraint that our systems had to be economic without any government incentive now since 2008 people have had a hard time believing that that was possible But that's because they were looking at legacy systems and saying any one of these legacy systems is gonna require additional CapEx and OpEx. But we were saying, no, we're taking a blank sheet approach. We're redesigning the engine for power generation with the constraint in mind that you have to capture the CO2. Um, And so now that the IRA has passed and we've spent a decade and a half developing these technologies, we've spent a decade and a half Building trust with the industry. We spent a decade and a half building trust with our investors. Um, I would say it's game on.
0: Mm. All right, great. So, I do want to, I guess, talk about this idea. You've brought up uh, partners and customers and the industry itself. You have developed these technologies, but I guess the the question is, are you an owner operator of these? Are you selling equipment? Are you strictly consulting and then licensing out this? I guess, how does a solution actually come to fruition?
1: Okay, so uh, the way I would describe Eight Rivers is one, we're a solutions provider, but what does that mean? That means we innovate and develop technology. And then we innovate and develop new business models. So one of the themes uh, you know, for the past few quarters has been business model innovation. How do you get these large projects financed? That's something that we've focused a lot of our time thinking about, probably just as much as the technology side. Um, and so typically we'll engage a customer, um, we'll understand what emissions they're looking to eliminate uh, or what their systems are. Uh, from there, we can either provide solutions that we currently have or we can go to work to build more of an integrated solution uh, with with our industrial heat applications. Um, and then out of early engineering, we'll move into more detailed feed design uh, and then work to help finance the overall project by going out and finding partners and acting as kind of a broker, if you will, on behalf of the client. In other instances, we'll start the project ourselves. So we'll go out and we'll find a location where there's good CO2 transport or existing sequestration wells. We'll find out who owns the land. We'll go talk to that organization, look to lease it. And then we go talk to, you know, the the local utilities, those who could provide the the fuel. So the natural gas and, and offtake electricity or offtake and consume hydrogen into ammonia production. And we don't ask them to do anything different than what their traditional business does. Sell natural gas, make, make ammonia, buy hydrogen, do a power offtake, transport the CO2 in the CO2 pipeline that you have. And if those parties come to the table and give us those supply and offtake agreements... We can go to work to then finance the development of the project to FID, um, and and so I think our approach is very logical when it's when it's stated, um, but it, it doesn't seem to be uh, an approach that a, a lot of technology developers are taking. Instead, they're saying, "Please buy my technology." In the long run, we don't want to be an owner-operator. So even the projects that we develop, we'll bring in partners who have experience in ownership and operation. We're not going to do that long-term. Okay. Yeah, the way you
0: talk about it, it I guess just popped into mind the idea of like the the fallacy of those sunken costs or being committed to a project because you've already spent that money and it. It seems like that's kind of the mentality people take right now is we've already got the system. We've already run it. We're already running it in this way. So we need a simple bolt on that will abate carbon and not cost us too much money. And that's the only way we can do it. But that's not really that's not optimizing a system that is
1: trying to minimize your additional impact. That's exactly right. So if you focus only on trying to eliminate the CO2 instead of designing a system that inherently captures the CO2, your economics typically always break.
0: Mm. Yep. So one more question before I get into my final questions, as we are here at Sarah week, it is
1: Thursday. So the week's almost over. How has the show been for y'all? Um, this year has been incredible. Uh, you know, as we talk about energy transition and the largest energy conference in the world, I would say this conference has started to transition. You know, we've seen the addition in the Agora now uh, of the climate hub. Last year, we saw the addition of the carbon hub and the hydrogen hub. And, and this year, you've got all the big oil and gas incumbents all talking about the fact that CO2 emissions need to be reduced that climate change is real, they've observed it, they have the science, and they know, and that they're coming to the table to help solve the problem. But it's not just them alone, right? Because they wouldn't exist if there weren't a bunch of customers. Um, You know, across society, petrochemical products are in everything that we use. You know, the plastic in iPhone cases, the, the clothing that we wear is made from polymers, and Oftentimes those products and their affordability is subsidized by the sale of the larger volume product, which is gasoline, diesel fuel, jet fuel. Um, And so it's not that uh, it's just the oil and gas companies. It's, It's our job as Eight Rivers to figure out the way that they're looking at it, understand their perspective, and meet them where they're at. But just telling and shouting from the rooftop that oil and gas companies need to spend more money uh, isn't the way to do it. Um, you need, once you, I've found that if you go into these organizations, understand where they're at, uh, you can walk them to really pragmatic solutions and they'll adopt those. Um, so that's one theme here at Sarah Week that I've seen is, is an open-mindedness, a progressiveness in the discussion. Um, I would say this is the most attended Sarah Week in history. Uh, Over 7,500 people in attendance. Uh, They've done a wonderful job spreading the crowd over the entire space from the Hilton uh, on through the Agora. Um, And it's just been a wonderful networking experience. Uh, Leaders are ready to stop and and talk to solution providers uh, and engage in in meaningful dialogue that it will result uh I think in emissions reductions long term.
0: Yep. Yep, absolutely. Well, I I've had a very similar experience. I think it's a very good show and and I think you hit it hit it right on the head with the with that theme of now it everybody is coming together and coming together in a very real and very pragmatic and very I guess accelerated sort of way with that I want to transition into the final questions these are the questions I ask all of my guests that first question being what is a favorite book of yours that you would recommend
1: recent one um, it's a it's a good theme for Sarah week uh, Dan Jurgen's new map it's a book by Dan Jurgen entitled the new map and it talks about energy uh, and geopolitics across the world.
0: I like it. That one is by far the most recommended book. So you are spot on with that and very fitting for, for it being Sarah Week.
1: The other one I would recommend, uh, I don't know the author, but it's called Elephants Can Dance. And it's all about IBM's transition from a large, lethargic organization to becoming a nimble, agile, innovative organization.
0: All right. Yeah, I think that's a, that sounds like a really good one as well. I will have to add it to the list. Now that next question is, when will we be net zero as a society?
1: Mm. Mm. I don't know. Um, I, I, I don't know the answer to that. I know that um, you know a lot of the world's largest companies have their commitments at some point in time. We hear a lot about net zero by twenty fifty. Um, you know, the fact is the atmosphere is global, and uh, you know I don't know what China and India are going to decide to do in the long term.
0: I think there there's been a lot of I don't knows answered uh, throughout the time, but I think that you make a very good point there that there the reason that. It is hard to know is because ultimately we don't we don't control the world and it it's always going to be that push and pull of are we allowing the developing countries to develop and have access to clean water reliable energy and all of the all of the the access that we have today, the things that we potentially take granted, take for granted versus
1: at low cost, at low cost at low as cost. well. Yeah.
0: Yes. Or are we going to say, everybody, we're going to have these mandates and somehow we're going to hit them.
1: I mean, yeah, uh, it's a it's a good point. But now that I've given it more thought, um, I think we achieve net zero on April 17th of 2057 bet
0: sorry let me write that down
1: april 17th yep 2057 print it
0: but let's do I it like it <laughs> that'll be two days after my after my birthday i don't know what what year that'll be how, how old will you be i i can't do math that fast
1: all right so it's uh 30 Um, it's just 34 years to whatever your age is now. (laughs) Actually, I will be, I'll be 70. Perfect. Me too. We're the same age. We're both 36. Yep. You're 36. Well,
0: almost. I was born in 87. Okay. April, April 15th. Close enough. 1987.
1: Yep. I'm a chemist. I'm quick with the numbers.
0: Yep. Yeah. Geologists. We're not quick with numbers. Oh, you're a but geologist. We can, we can identify rocks pretty fast.
1: That's good. We need that for the sequestration, you know?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, now that I'm talking, you actually get to ask me a question is the last question. So I feel like we need to keep this dialogue,
1: <laughs> dialogue going. This is much more fluid. This feels I've, like the podcast that I've heard. Oh, yeah. is it? Yeah, a well, back and forth.
0: Yeah, I'm going to let you ask a question now, and then we can go back and forth some more.
1: All right. So, so being a geologist, uh, do you? um, uh, And I'll ask this over. We're gonna we're gonna do this again. But do you go by Joseph or Joe? Either one. Okay. So, uh, being a geologist, uh, Joe, um, what do you think uh, the potential is in pore space for CO2 sequestration? Do you think there's enough of it to to store all the CO2 safely? You know, if you,
0: this is a interesting question because there's the technical answer that that all of that CO two or all of that carbon was in the pore space at one point, and in fact, more of it was because at some at some points in history, CO two in the atmosphere was lower than it was today. So, technically, yes, there we can physically put all of it back subsurface and have it, have it out of the, the modern or kind of present day carbon cycle. It can go back into its geologic carbon storage space. Now, the tricky part here is that we are taking that carbon, we're putting it into a, into a different spot and we are putting it in in a different way. If we're putting it in as CO2. It is not It is not in its, its dead life form and then being buried at the bottom of the ocean as algae or as plant matter. We're physically taking it as CO2 and trying to put it in the subsurface. So I think that the answer is yes. But... Can we do it in the way that we are? That, I think, is is a bigger question. And I think right now we are still struggling with that because I I always forget the exact stat, but I think we have to increase the amount of sequestration 20 times above what it is today. And right now we we haven't been able to find that much pore space, get those many permits out, actually see where we're gonna put all of this. And even some of the largest projects I've heard of only get up to 25% of today's sequestration and we have to go 20 times above it or more, I think. So technically, yes, it should be possible because of the geologic, the geologic cycle. Can we physically do it using kind of our constructed ideas? That I don't know.
1: It's an interesting point. Um, I, you know, from, from a technical capabilities standpoint, um, I, would, I believe that if we do the analysis of how much uh, fluid, both in liquid and gas form, the oil and gas industry has transported and moved from place to place extracted put into different form over time that they've they've probably moved that much volume um the other thing that's interesting that you mentioned is the permitting and i do think that actually that's the question even before geology is permitting going to be able to keep up yeah. to meet that 20 times um have you ever heard of a company called carb fix
0: i have yeah. yes yeah so i I know a few people at CarpFix.
1: It's a pretty neat company taking the basaltic formations and, yep. and creating calcium carbonate down in the ground. And.
0: Yeah, I think that what they're doing is very cool. And I, I know that there's been some studies by the USGS looking at areas that are similar like the Snake River Plain. Snake River Plain has a lot of basalt and, and mafic rocks. Similar to Iceland in some in some ways like that, and looking at those kind of areas to do similar processes.
1: The last thing I'll add, just as a conversation point, so maybe you have some interesting material. So, Oxy obviously is an investor in net power. Uh, Oxy acquired Anadarko in and through the pandemic, um, and they used uh, Vicky uh, Holub, their CEO. Leverage $10 billion from Warren Buffett to make that acquisition possible. Now, a lot of people have said, or at the time, they said that was the dumbest deal ever, shouldn't have done it. Um, and so since then, Oxy's price has, has really went up significantly. And so I started to look at that. And then Warren Buffett and Berkshire started talking about how they, they want to be able to acquire up to 51% of Oxy. Wow. So then I started looking into Berkshire and the companies that they own. And one is Lubrizol, a company out of Akron, Ohio, where I'm from. And uh, I found out that Berkshire wholly owns Lubrizol. And Lubrizol's largest customer is Occidental Petroleum because they provide a surfactant that helps with the injection of CO2 into reservoirs for enhanced oil recovery. And one of the ideas on storage when I was talking to the chemist at Lubrizol, because I have an old uh, classmate that's now there, um, was given that this compound is already used as an injectant with CO2, um, it would be interesting if you could develop a surfactant that you could inject with CO2 and then follow it with a catalyst. That would cause a polymerization reaction with CO two and that surfactant to create a solid underground. Conspiracy yeah. theory. I think this is where Buffett's headed. All right, should we write this one down as well? Uh, I would put that right next to that April seventeenth, twenty fifty-seven. I've got
0: it. Great. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what you're saying is 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 very interesting though because. When you look at carb fix, one of the key parameters is how fast that chemical reaction occurs and how fast you actually get the solidification. And part of the reason it works so well in Iceland is because you are in an active geothermal system. So by increasing the temperature, that is how they get it to work as quickly as they can. And that is almost the big question for something like the Snake River Plain. It's like, in in the far western Snake River Plain, you're not as hot because it's older. If you're like right next to Yellowstone, it is hot. Now you're starting to talk about national parks and and that's a whole whole nother regulatory issue. So I'll stop that conversation there. But it that is one of the key key issues of carbon sequestration is as you're obviously aware is how do you keep it in the ground? That's and right. And if you could force it to polymerize or somehow become a non non um, gaseous state, then you've got a, a you've got a real winner.
1: Yeah, and I agree. And I I think that we are able to keep the gas in the ground. I think it just helps with a lot of public perception. Oh, yeah. And people who don't understand that, it so happens that all that methane you use to cook and run your stove didn't suddenly start leaking out of the ground. But somebody had to go get it and and force it to come out, right? Um, And I think, you know, we'll be able to control CO2 in a gaseous state. But it puts everybody's mind at ease if you could tell them it's going into solid. That really, really, I think it it lowers the cost of the insurance product as well. Mm. That's the big thing uh, now that I think about it. It's the insurance product and the cost of that insurance that goes way down when you can prove solidification.
0: Mm. Very interesting.
1: Yeah, I think about this stuff too much. Yeah,
0: when you have to think about the entire system, there's opportunities to become economic. Just by lowering your insurance premiums. Maybe we should call Geico.
1: Uh, I think uh, Buffett owns that too, buddy.
0: <laughs> oh, man. Berkshire. We are definitely getting too far down the the conspiracy theory rabbit hole here. I think we
1: need a whole another podcast yep. for this.
0: <laughs> yep. <laughs> I will have to have you on again for Conspiracy Theory 101 and Energy. I love it. Yep. But... Damien, thank you for joining me on the show today. Before we sign off, is there anything else that you'd like to
1: say? Nothing else for me. I think we, we covered our bases here. Thanks for uh, the time today.
0: All right. Well, Damien, thank you again. And thank you, everyone, for joining us on this episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, share it with a friend and leave a review telling me what you're enjoying most or what you'd like to hear more of. If you want more news and energy-related stories, we have all sorts of energy-related podcasts on OGGN. You can find them by connecting with us on LinkedIn or visiting OGGN.com. One more thing, I have a quick favor to ask. I have a one-question survey that I want you to fill out. The link is in the show notes. Please go fill that out. And if you do, we can send you some stickers. And finally, if you have any questions, comments, corrections, or have a story that you would like to share, send me an email or find me on LinkedIn. And until next time, remember to keep it low carbon and high energy. Join us again next week for another low carbon, high energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.